0: Blog Talk Radio
1: challenge you to think and live for yourself not convert you i'll say that one more time we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself not convert you And I am really excited about today's show. Today we'll have Dr. Jeffrey Perry with us, and we'll be talking about Hubert Henry Harrison, Triple H there, and the book called The Invention of the White Race. And I actually have this book. I'm picking it up now at home. I haven't had a chance to crack it open, and this was written by Theodore W. Allen. And we're going to get into this a little bit later. But before we go on, I want to do some announcements so that you guys can know what's happening again we want to remind everybody that the moving social justice conference will be taking place October 11th and 12th of 2014 in Los Angeles, California. We will be taking this conference to Los Angeles, California. It's actually our first conference, and it will be taking place at CFI Los Angeles. And again, this is October 11th and 12th. We've been telling you about this since last October, you know, tried to give you a year's notice. Um, That page will be going up on the People of Colored um, BeyondFaith.org website. Um, We'll have that tomorrow, and people you'll be able to start registering, $40 registration, $25 for students. So it's two days of, you know, great conversations. We'll be talking about homophobia and transphobia. Um, in the black church, uh, we'll be talking about LGBTQ issues um, and, you know, atheists of color, just just a number of things. Um, so we just wanted to make sure that you knew that. We have an Indiegogo campaign running now. We just started it yesterday, and it'll be running for 60 days, but we're trying to raise $3,000, and with that money, that will assist with part of the conference, but more so with our social justice outreach programs. So this year... We have um, our first national social justice outreach um, program will be June 27th, which is National HIV Testing Day. So we have groups in Chicago, Los Angeles, Houston, the DMV area, as well as Milwaukee. We have five teams that are going to go out that day, and we're working on um um, building relationships in the community, but we'll be out there giving people information about where they can go get free anonymous testing if that's what they choose to do. We will be handing out prophylactics and things of that nature, and that is our first national social justice project and all of these groups they have local projects as well so we want to support them in that another project we're doing is back to school you know supplies donations so in those same five cities and again it's not just relegated to those five cities if you're interested in taking part of this we need we need resources we need volunteers to come out with those five cities if you want to do one in your own city we can help you set that up that is not an issue we want to expand this and this is open to the entire Free thought community, the entire secular community, as well as the believing community, we have no problem. Come on out and share with us so that we can share and give back to the community. So we want to do back-to-school donations, you know, so we need school supplies. So we need a number of things, not only with, you know, the financial aspect of it, but if you all have, um, you know, school supplies that you can donate, we need canned and dry foods because we also have um, scheduled for homeless outreach. And again, the five cities there and so we have a number of homeless um programs that we're going to be working with. And I know um in Houston, which is Houston Black nonbelievers, they'll be working with Joe Zemecki. And they just um, as a matter of fact in a couple of days they have a major outreach program, um, Joe's group. Homeless, um, you know, for the homeless um um project he has in Houston, which came over from the project that he had in Austin. So that's exciting. I know here in Chicago, we'll be working with homeless veterans. So it's just a number of different programs in Los Angeles. They'll be working at a homeless LGBTQ shelter. So, you know, it's happening all over the place. We're doing, um, at the end of the year, we're going to give, um, you know, food and all of those things and outreach to those that are disadvantaged and need those things, um, on December first we'll be out again for World World uh, I'm sorry, World Age Day. So, you know, the number of things that we're doing, um Right now we're running with um, a local project here in Chicago. We're collecting soap to give to the, to the um, homeless. Um, so it, it's just interesting, and these are homeless people that are living in a shelter, and it's called Pacific Mission here in Chicago. And we're doing that with another um, group, you know, another um you know um non profit groups, so you know there are a number of things that we have on the books, and you know we're finalizing a few things, but we wanted to let you know where the money is going. The money is definitely going towards the social justice outreach and grassroots um activism, so we just want to let you guys know about that. you know we need the assistance, whether you know we need bodies as well so Wanted to let you know about that. Surly Amy over at Surly Ramix donated some necklaces for us for our fundraiser, so we appreciate that there. And she's actually starting a new group over at CFI, and I'll have more information about that, but it's a new group that's coming up, and, you know, she's going to have more information for me, but I wanted to let you all know about that. That's going to be taking place at CFI. New York, and I'm trying to think, is that all that I can announce, that's all that I can remember at this point. So if I forget somebody or forget something, forgive me, I'll probably remember by the end of the show and double back, okay? But today, we definitely want to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Perry. And Let me tell you a little bit about, you know, Dr. Perry here. He's an independent working class scholar, formerly educated at Princeton Harvard in Columbia. His work focuses on the role of white right, supremacy as a retardant to progressive social change and on the centrality of struggle against white supremacy to progressive social change. For 40 years, Perry has been active in the working class movement as a rank-and-file worker and as a union shop steward, officer, editor, and retiree. He has also been involved in domestic and international social justice issues, including affirmative action, union democracy, and anti-apartheid, anti-war, and anti-imperialist work. Perry was influenced toward serious study of matters of race and class in America through personal experiences and readings through the work of an independent scholar and personal close friend, the late Theodore W. Allen, author of The Invention of the White Race and summary of the argument of the invention of the white race. Allen was an anti-white supremacist, proletarian intellectual, and an autodidact whose research and writings on the role of white supremacy in the United States history and on the central of the Struggle Against White Supremacy, disposed Perry to be receptive to the life and work of Hubert Harrison, another independent autodidact, anti-white supremacist, working class intellectual. Perry considers Harrison and Allen to be two of the 20th century's most important writers on race and class in America. So, guys, let's, let's welcome Dr. Perry to the show. Dr. Perry, welcome, and I am honored to have you here today.
2: Well thank you Kim and I'm honored to be on the show and this is wonderful work you're doing so uh, let's let's go.
1: <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. It is so much to be you know discussed today and you know first first things first can you tell us a little bit about Hubert Henry Harrison?
2: Sure. Uh, Harrison is truly one of the giants of black history and unfortunately most people don't know about him. He was born in 1883 in St. Croix in the Virgin Islands and he dies in 1927 unexpectedly of appendicitis related condition in New York. Um, he he leaves st. Croix in 1900 after his mom passes away and arrives as a 17 year old orphan in New York his uh, and where he lives remainder of his life his overall importance I usually break out into two broad areas his intellectual contributions and his uh, political contributions Uh, So if it's okay, I'll move ahead. Regarding his intellectual contributions, J.A. Rogers in World's Great Men of Color describes Harrison as the foremost Afro-American intellect of his era and the one with the sanest program. And that's amid chapters on Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, William Monroe Trotter, and Marcus Garvey. So it's extraordinarily high praise, and Rogers is a very well-respected writer on black history and um uh, so we and again i want to emphasize as you mentioned kim and i appreciate the fact that you highlighted this but harrison was an autodidact self-educated as we see later in malcolm and in so many in so many black free thinkers as a matter of fact is that whole tradition and um It's in Harrison's case and in a lot of the other cases that I'm familiar with it gives him a real independence uh, a willingness to critically look at ideas and you know not just take handed down dogma and things like that and really try and assess things uh, very independently now as an intellectual Harrison um, was. Um, he, he, when, when he started, when he first arrived, he had to work, um, five days a week and a couple nights and uh, New York world, one of the daily newspapers in New York ran a headline genius found in, in West Indian student. They had never seen anybody quite like Harrison, um, he was working, as I said, five days a week, two nights, and he got citywide honors in uh, Latin and, I think, one other subject. Uh, so that was kind of a, a foreshadowing of what was to come. He, I, I went through his papers. I, I uh, tracked down his family in the early 1980s, and uh, t- they I essentially gave me all his papers to work with. And I indexed them, inventoried them, preserved them, and now they've been placed at Columbia University. It's a major collection. I, oh, and I want to point out for listeners, if I may, that my webpage, page, www.jeffreybperry.net, has all kinds of free information on Harrison, on Allen, and they have links to so much that I'm going to be talking about today, such as Hubert Harrison's paper. It's a 102-page finding aid available online. And um, so, as I went through Harrison's papers... Uh, He would break into different languages at times. So I'm still focusing on Harrison as intellectual. The indications are he spoke or read six languages, including in his uh, latter years, he was reading the uh, Quran and teaching himself Arabic, not because he was religious, but because it was a religion of so many people of African descent. Um, He read voraciously. Uh, I went through the books that remained in his collection, but he's a a great bibliophile, lover of books. He would sell books on street corners and encourage other people. He wrote wonderful essays such as Read, Read, Read. And he and Arthur Schomburg are two of the founding officers of the Schomburg Center, which is the major black research center in New York and one of the major research centers in the world. And um, when he died, it was said that he oftentimes read One or two books a day. Now, I've been through the books that remained in his collection, and I don't totally discount that because he knew how to aggressively go after a book. You don't have to read everything. You can hone in on what is important to you and focus on it, and uh, we we have evidence of that from his, his papers. He was a pioneering soapbox orator. He would speak, started, at, he first started out in lower Manhattan. Uh, for people not familiar with Manhattan, when Harrison first comes to Manhattan, he lives... Uh, On West 62nd Street, which is near where Lincoln Center is today, but they knocked out some buildings, some buildings that Harrison lived in, there was a five-block area, 3,500 people in five blocks, mostly African-American and Afro-Caribbean, and that's where Harrison first lived until the IRT subway gets built in 1904, and then he moves up to Harlem. That same area 20 years later is where... um, A felonious monk grows up, and, uh, you know, there's other – I mean, it's a whole rich area, a tradition. Um, Now, when Harrison uh, is speaking on soapboxes, and he starts the tradition, which gets picked up later by Philip Randolph, Marcus Garvey, Chandler Owen, uh, much later Malcolm X. He speaks on history, science, politics, religion, evolution, education – literature, theater, and always, or so often, on race and class. Um, He's a prolific writer. Uh, We've located over 700 writings by Harrison. Now, for people who want to read his own writings, we have one book out, which is uh, a Hubert Harrison reader, which has 138 uh, articles by Harrison. He's a brilliant writer and including what, what I think will be of particular interest to the black freethinker audience is a detailed uh, letter in which he describes his break from religion and how torturous it was and but how it opens up then you know, many new vistas for him in terms of the work he does. Um, and he uh, uh, in addition I want to mention on those 700 pieces uh, I'm in the process right now of uh, putting all 700, preparing all 700 plus articles by Hubert Harrison online for free at Columbia University's rare book and manuscript library webpage. So we're trying to get it up. I'm working on a, about 50 pages, uh, 50 articles every two months to try and make Harrison just freely available. Um, he was a journalist. Um, he was an editor of the, as an editor He was the editor of The Masses, which was the leading left literary publication in the U.S. uh, around 1911. He edits The Voice entitled A Newspaper for the New Negro. This, he edits it from 1917 to 1919, and what's important about this, this is eight years before Alain Locke, and this is where a familiarity with Harrison helps us to reinterpret so much of the history that has been passed along. Uh, most people think of the New Negro and they think of Alain Locke, 1925, but the New Negro Movement, which Harrison found is eight years earlier, It's incredibly literary because every publication that he's principal editor of has poetry for the people and book review sections, um, but it's also based in social and political activism. Uh, So Harrison, again, in 1917, he begins editing The Voice. It's recognized as the first newspaper of the New Negro movement. In 1919, he edits a publication called The New Negro, again, six years before Locke, and that's intended as an organ of the International consciousness of the darker races, especially the Negro race, then, in nineteen twenty he becomes principal editor of marcus garvey 's Negro World when that paper sweeps the globe and Harrison is an extraordinary enter editor and again he's bringing in lots of writers from around the world to submit pieces and um, a, a, He introduces not only the poetry for the people in book review sections, he also, with his internationalism, brings and starts a West Indian News Notes column. Um, And finally, his last publication that he edited was The Voice of the Negro uh, in 1927, uh, up until the period when he he passes away. And that was uh, the organ of the International Colored Unity League. And I'll just mention briefly, in that last publication, and that International Colored Unity League, we see another comparison with malcolm much later on how malcolm's last effort is with the organization of afro-american unity right more broadly based harrison as an intellectual was also a critic Um, we have um In 1907, when he's working in the post office on the night shift, he has two front-page articles on literary criticism published in uh, what was then the Saturday Review of Books of the New York Times. Now it's the Sunday Review of Books. And um, we've located uh, over 40 reviews that he he did. Um, uh, Eugene O'Neill, who wins the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1936, earlier when Harrison had done a review of the Emperor Jones with um, Charles Gilpin in the lead this is before Paul Robes and Charles Gilpin was leading black actor of that early period. And uh, when Harrison had done a review of that in the Negro world, O'Neill wrote him and said it was just one of the finest pieces he had ever seen in any theater. Harrison had anything to do with, Uh, he, he, uh, O'Neill had anything to do with Harrison was more than welcome. And, um, just one more thing on this Harrison as a book reviewer. There were two uh, members of the National Book Critics Executive Board within the past couple of years who put up quotes from Hubert Harrison on their personal web pages on how to review books. So he uh, extraordinary still, uh, just a couple more things on Harrison as an intellectual, and then, if you have any questions, or, or else we can move to him as a radical. But Harrison was a pioneer black activist in the socialist movement a pioneer arguably the pioneer black activist in the free thought movement some of his contemporaries say he was the first you know the first major first you know Um, a birth control uh, activist um, a founder of the new negro movement this is all again in his intellectual capacity he's also a promoter and aid to black writers and artists people like claude mckay Augusta Savage uh, Plot from South Africa and uh, Andy Razaf, U.B. Blake a a number in all different areas of the arts he uh, worked with them, maintained good relations and understood I think very well the interrelation between art and politics he was also a featured lecturer for the New York City Board of Education from 1922 to 26. although he never went to college a day in his life and all the other lecturers this is when a principal form of adult education in New York was evening education for working people that come back, and uh, and he was the only black lecturer in that period. Uh, and he also delivered series of lectures at NYU and Columbia University in 1926 in the, on China in the period of the uh, Canton Uprising. So broad range. And finally. And so important, uh, he was a bibliophile and library popularizer. Uh, he, as I said earlier, he was on the founding committee, uh, of, that set up the Division of Negro Literature, History, and Prints of the 135th Street branch of the New York Public Library, which has grown into the Schomburg Center, which I believe, Kim, your friend, Khalil Muhammad, your, your, uh, friend from youth, from growing up, uh, is now the director of, head of. And, um, he, uh, again, Harrison wrote these – he believed that free public libraries were one of the great institutions in America, and he wrote wonderful essays like Read, 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 just fascinating stuff. He also did, uh, did wonderful essays, messages to the youth on, on have a critical mind, have an independent mind, and don't think you know until you've heard 10 differing opinions, it, it just fascinating and rich material. So that's a little overview of Harrison as an intellectual. Would you like to hear about him as a a radical activist?
1: Well, I wanted to tell people, because I read this here, and I wanted to make sure people knew. um, John G. Jackson is another giant in in the community, and um, some people don't realize that J.A. Rogers was also a free thinker. But here it says, John G. Jackson once said, Harrison was a belligerent anti-Christian and, like J.E. Rogers, could not understand why black people accepted Christianity. Quote, if given a choice between Christian heaven and hell, Harrison said he would rather go to hell. When asked why he rejected Christianity, Harrison stated that he refused to worship a lily-white god and a Jim Crow Jesus. End quote. The way white Americans practice Christianity was not the only thing that influenced both Rogers and Harrison to reject Christianity. They were both heavily influenced by Robert G. Ingersoll. And I know that that's gonna put a smile on a few people's faces out there. So I just wanted
2: to interject with that, but please go on. Yeah, oh well thank you. Thank you for all of that. And um, the Jackson uh papers, I, I did a talk um a while ago, at the American Atheists in New Jersey, they have their headquarters there, and they—I ha- don't know if people are familiar—but they have Jackson's ashes, and they're supposed to have some of Jackson's papers, although they've not been able to locate all that they thought they had. But they, that was—they were in, in Cranford, New Jersey, or supposed to be. And uh, Jackson, uh, I think you're quoting from uh, the Black Socrates. Uh, it's it's in pamphlet form. The article, the piece he did on on Harrison—is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, yeah, and people want to know about that. And sometimes you can get it online for free, but it's 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 available. And uh, Jackson was, of course, a wonderful admirer of Harrison. And in the uh, reader, in the Hubert Harrison reader, uh, Harrison does a really strong critique of Christianity, which people will find of interest. Um, going on as Harrison as a and radical activist, um, he. A. Philip Randolph uh, refers to Harrison as the father of Harlem radicalism. And this is a period when Harlem uh, is considered the center of radical black thought and the international Negro Mecca. People were coming there from down south, from the Caribbean, from Africa, from Europe, you know, wherever the the, the African peoples, you know, were, right? They would oftentimes come to New York because such firm and such, so many ideas and such, uh, intellectual and political activism. And Randolph refers to Harrison as the father of Harlem radicalism. Harrison is the only person in United States history. And again, I want to emphasize what a giant we're talking about. He is the only person in United States history to play leading signal roles in the largest class radical and the largest race radical movements of his era. He was the leading black organizer, agitator, and theoretician in the Socialist Party around its 1912 heyday. And for a number of years, um, there's a brief interlude when he's active with the free thought movement and um, and anarchists and, and just other, speaking on birth control. And then he turns to race radicalism and uh, he is, the as I said earlier, he founds the first organization, the Liberty League in 1917 and the first newspaper, The Voice of the New Negro Movement. Becomes principal editor of Garvey's Negro World, so and uh, principal radical influence on Garvey by uh, accounts of contemporaries. Um, so he is, and when I do my slide presentations, which are also available for people who would like to go through this, what I'm what I'm discussing here a little more. You know, slowly in detail and with some visual um, props, if you will. When I go through my slides, I usually flash a picture of Randolph, a picture of Garvey, and I, I point out that when we bring those lines of dissent, the class radical uh, Randolph and the race radical Garvey, both of whom Harrison was the major influence on. When we bring those lines of dissent down a little more to at least my generation, that's Martin and Malcolm, right? Martin marches on Washington with Randolph at his side, and Malcolm's mother was a reporter for the Negro World, the paper that Harrison had been principal editor of, and his father was a Garveyite preacher. So we see those lines of dissent. Um, In the various pieces I've written, I argue that Harrison, because of this role he's played, this formative and influential role, is a key ideological link in the two great wings of the civil rights black liberation struggle. Another reason I think people want to pay attention to what he, you know, he says. Um, He profoundly influenced a generation of new Negro militants and common people. He used the phrase common people with great affection. As I mentioned earlier, when he lived on West 62nd Street, it was in the heart of the black community in New York at that time, 3,500 people, five blocks. When he moves to Harlem... He lives on 134th Street, 231 West 134th. It is the most densely populated block in Harlem. So he's of the people, he's not from on high. Um, He would walk down the streets, his children when they were alive told me he would walk down the streets and the kids would follow him and the neighbors and everybody would talk to him. He was very much of the people, right? Um, In the books that I've I've written, and besides the reader, which I edited, 138 of Harrison's articles, people should know, I'm completing the second volume of a two-volume biography on him for for Columbia University Press. The first volume was Hubert Harrison, The Voice of Harlem Radicalism, 1883 to 1918. The second volume will cover the last nine to ten years of his life. And um, uh, it's the first... Uh, A multi-volume biography of an Afro-Caribbean and only the fifth of an African American after those of uh, Booker T. Washington, um, a multi-volume Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, Langston Hughes, and Martin Luther King Jr., Uh, And in the books, I argue, and no one has seriously challenged this, that amongst his generation, Hubert Harrison was the most class-conscious of the race radicals and the most race-conscious of the class radicals. He's also an extraordinary radical internationalist. He's extremely knowledgeable on Africa, Winston James, a wonderful historian, has written a book holding aloft the banner of Ethiopia about early twentieth century Caribbean radicalism, and he points out very correctly, I think that amongst his contemporaries, Harrison knew more and spoke and wrote more knowledgeably about Africa, but he did so without the arrogance that so often comes from people of this country um towards people from Africa, right, and in in Africa. Um, This appeal of Harrison and his understanding of Africa, another project I'm working on, trying to finish up very shortly, is a reprint of his second book, When Africa Awakes, which is uh, going to be published by Diasporic Africa Press. Hopefully we'll get this one finished soon. Uh, Not only Africa, however. Harrison speaks on Asia. I mentioned earlier when he's speaking on the the Canton uprising in China in 1920. But he also wrote – and I have scholars from India who have written to me and said that what Harrison's writing around the period of the First World War on India is some of the best writings they see coming out of the U.S. in terms of understanding that situation. He writes – extraordinarily knowledgeably on the Mideast and developments in that area of the world particularly in the early 20th century he writes on the Americas and Europe and he considered himself a radical internationalist Uh, Joyce Moore Turner who's another wonderful historian uh, and the daughter of Richard B. Moore a contemporary of Harrison and a famed Scottsboro orator and social activist Emphasizes. She says, Jeff, when you, when you speak to people, you please, please emphasize Harrison was such a radical internationalist and he considered himself that. Um, and again, there's quotes from a number of people, including James, Richard B. Moore, and others. Uh, and here's what Harrison himself writes uh, in terms of his radical internationalism. He writes, Although I am not satisfied with American conditions as they are now, I realize that in these days of change and unrest, I would not have been satisfied anywhere else. In China, I would be fighting against foreign domination. In Egypt, India, South Africa, or West Africa, I would be fighting against the British oligarchs. In Jamaica, against the sinister repression of black people practiced by both whites and mulattoes. And in the Dutch, French, or American West Indies against crackerism, stupidity, or cowardice. So he he considers himself a radical internationalist. Um, So overall, Harrison's approach and uh is he's race conscious He's class conscious, he's scientific, and this is where that free thought background and the break from religion is so central. What, what's so, so significant when Harrison, as he starts developing, and what he the details in that letter that's uh, included in the Hubert Harrison Reader, the letter is written around uh, 1908, but he talks about his break from religion seven years earlier and how he had gone through church history and scripture and, you know, it just wasn't making sense after a certain point, and how he turns to science. And at first he calls himself an agnostic, you know, but in the sense that Huxley uses it, right, and says don't go further than, you know, your mind and your reason can take you in forming your conclusions. And so Harrison turns to science to address social problems. And when he does that... Um, In a certain sense that enables him to address, you know, with a, a, a certain clarity, but it's also a break from the most powerful institution traditionally in the black community, the black church. So it's a, you know, a significant development in his life. But again, going back on Harrison's approach, he's race conscious, he's class conscious, he's scientific, he's internationalist, and he emphasizes the common people. Five more aspects of his overall approach it's a mass approach. He He's always trying to reach the common people. He says, black unity, we really want to try and build it from the bottom up, like the fire at the exactly. bottom, he says, which is different than Booker T. Washington, you know, who has his Tuskegee machine, or Du Bois, who's talking about the talented 10th and, and their role. Harrison says, no, we've go, we got to light it at the bottom. And later on, of course, in his third autobiography, uh, Du Bois comes much closer, uh, in that direction. Um, but, um, So in his day, the principal ways that you reached the masses were soapbox oratory. You got out there on the street and you talked to people and newspapers. And Harrison was a master of both. This is pre-radio, pre-TV essentially, right? Um, He's a big proponent of direct action. He was proactive. When I do my longer presentations or if people get a chance to look at the biography, um, I I relate this to some of his Caribbean background because there's a rich history of direct action, mass struggle in St. Croix where Harrison comes uh, he understands the interrelation between the literature and the arts and doesn't think that you know he should be dictating to artists which is a very healthy attitude and enables him to really work well with a number of people um, he's anti-capitalist he's anti-imperialist he's scientific and through everything and this is what his children you know asked that I always remember and emphasize uh, he, they said Jeff please always emphasize he challenged white supremacy and he understood it was central to capitalist rule so that's overall uh, an overview of Harrison one last thing if i may when he dies 1927 his funeral is attended by thousands, which, you know, leads to the question, why don't we know more about him today? But the eulogy is delivered by Arthur Schomburg, Arturo Schomburg, an afro and an Afro-Puerto Rican friend of Harrison's uh-huh. for many years. And Harrison knew, I mean, Schomburg knew how popular Harrison was but he also understood and eulogized that Hubert Harrison was ahead of his time. And I think that's true, and I think that's why, and I'm very firmly of the belief that both Hubert Harrison and and Theodore W. Allen, who hopefully we'll talk a little more about later, um, are both people who are just going to continue to grow in importance in this 21st century because they speak so clearly, so honestly, so perceptively to these issues which are so crucial and facing us today. Um, So I I think Schomburg was very much uh, on point when he says Harrison was ahead of his time.
1: Oh, most definitely, and I love the fact that one of my other heroes was directly influenced by Harrison, and that is A. Philip Rogers. I love that man. And um, basically what you were talking about as far as from the bottom up, I've been saying that for years, and also about being amongst the people, which is why it's important that we do the social justice, the community, and grassroots activism, because how can we advocate you know, for the people if we're not amongst the people and understand what the real issues are, the issues that are affecting them as well as us because I'm common people, trust me. And, you know, it's important that we don't have that disconnect. And that is one of the reasons why, you know, it's hard for some people to look at others as leaders because there is a disconnect and they do hold people at arm's length. So that's one of the things that I really loved about him was the fact that he wanted to be amongst the people that understand and be a part of the issues so that way he could advocate for them. You know, in a more personal um, way, which gives you a little bit more passion. Now, there was something that you talked about that I found very interesting, and I wanted you to talk a little bit about with Hubert Henry Harrison, talking about how black people are the cells, using that metaphor. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, an extraordinary metaphor. And he writes this in the 1911-1912 period when he's with the socialists, and he writes, the Negro is... Politically, the Negro is the touchstone of the modern democratic idea. Now, the touchstone metaphor is extraordinary. I wasn't sure I knew exactly what the word meant when I first read that, so I looked it up. Other people might be so inclined to themselves. But a touchstone is a black stone that is used to rub it against the metal to see if it's really the gold that it's purported to be, right? So this metaphor is so applicable to the world we live in, right? Where we, any issue we look at in society, housing, education, health care, life expectancy, uh, employment, you know, just... Pick an issue, and let's put it to the test. How are black people faring, and what are we going to do about it? It's a wonderful guide to, to political and social activism. And um, and Harrison, and I'm so glad you picked up on this because I, I just think it's so important. And in the remainder of that passage, Harrison essentially says um, – true democracy and equality for black people implies a revolution startling to even think of. And what I think happens there is I think Harrison very accurately foreshadows the 1960s. That's the period when I come of age, if you will, and um, I and so many others, right? And we're so influenced by the civil rights, black liberation struggle. And that that, that struggle influences the labor movement, the women's movement, the gay and lesbian rights movement, um, the student movement, the anti-war movement, everything takes sustenance from that civil rights, black liberation struggle. And I think it's for two principal reasons. One, because the the cause was just, and two, because that, that struggle hits so directly at how um, the ruling class maintains control in this country, how, uh-huh. how social control is maintained, which leads later on, we, you know, we can talk when we talk about Allen's work, which focuses on racial oppression, social control and issues like that. But um, I think I, I think. When I, when I suggest what people can take from Harrison, I think you've, you've nailed it. That's one of the key things that I think people can and should draw from Harrison. His understanding that Negro uh, is the touchstone and um, that true equality and democracy implies a revolution startling to even think of. I think it's very profound and uh, we, can ca- we can move forward with some direction in the 21st century with that understanding.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I believe that, you know, um a Philip Randolph was you know, heavily influenced by that, which is what made him one of the, you know, most prominent, you know, organizers, along with Bayard Rustin, um, of the Civil Rights Movement. And I agree with you when you say that, you know, the Civil Rights Movement was kind of somewhat like a masthead, that all of these other movements, you know, do get sustenance from because they saw how it was organized, they saw the strides that it made, they saw, you know, how it helped people and that they could learn from that particular movement. So this is one of the reasons why, you know, because I've explained to people how and why sometimes, um, you know, African Americans get angry when people try to utilize and utilize the name of the civil rights movement for their movements. It's not that mm-hmm. we don't want them to learn from it. We just don't want them to usurp it. So, you know, you can learn from it, and use certain aspects of it. So that's one of the reasons why we've had some issues. But one thing I also wanted to talk about was um, Hubert Harrison's issue with NAACP, and his issue was they did not push for the anti-lynching legislation. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yes, I certainly can. I just want to add one, uh, one little thing to what we were just talking about, touch touchstone, very briefly. Um, if people get to go to the webpage, www.jeffreybperry.net, I have a long article on some insights from Harrison and Alan uh the developing conjuncture, the developing crisis. Um, it's a long article, but I think people will find it very interesting because it traces uh, various aspects of development of their thought, particularly I focus on Alan in that one, but it has a statistical section which shows how people are suffering in this society today and how all these issues are shaped in a white supremacist fashion, what we were talking about, you know, earlier. And it's good some good concrete statistics that people can get their hands on uh, and, and enlightening. I mean, I even I'm familiar with this. I've been writing about this stuff for a long time, and I was just shocked by some of the numbers I saw. Um, Uh, So I want to point that out, and also what we're talking about, Kim, just so um, uh, people know, again, on the webpage, there's a very nice video was done up in Boston on Boston TV on Hubert Harrison when we were up there uh, about two months ago uh, for Boston Neighborhood TV, um, and also a longer one on the invention of the white race and Alan's work. Uh, They are YouTube videos. If you Google my name, you'll get to them so What we're talking about today, people can go back again, go over if any of it uh, is of interest to them. Now, regarding the NAACP, um, this is very interesting because Harrison, when he first comes to the U.S. in his early years he considers himself he, his phrase that he uses was a Du Bois man right Du Bois and William and Trotter were the two leading uh, oppositional points to Booker T. Washington Booker T. Washington uh, was the p- paramount leading black um, leader in the country and he um, had that political machine the Tuskegee machine uh, but he had a kind of conservative political philosophy Harrison kept scrapbooks and and one he had entitled subservience and in there he had um Booker T Washington was quite paramount uh, in that one. Uh, and one, one of the quotes I cite in the book is Booker T. Washington saying of Theodore Roosevelt, who's the president, um, whatever he wants done, I will do, you know, something like that, which kind of, you know, would put him in that category. And um, so Harrison's leaning towards Du Bois and the protest philosophy uh, that Du Bois and, book- and uh, William Monroe Trotter and others are put- pushing forward. Uh, But then in the period 1909, 1910, the NAACP gets formed after um, some racial pogroms, if you will, um, in the Midwest. And then there's meetings in New York and the meetings to set up this new organization. uh, When some reports come out in the press about what's going on, Harrison strikes a warning note because this is what's going to be growing to the NAACP, and he says, in going over what's been written, uh, I note that some of the most pointed criticisms and comments from Black participants have been elided, have been taken out, and he goes, this is no way. For this organization to start You don't want to set this organization Up uh, where, where it has to meet white people's Expectations of how black people Should act right so it's a warning sign Right he's not you know totally antagonistic But he says no you don't want to go that way uh, Then the um, uh, The NAACP Du Bois becomes editor of the Crisis Magazine 1910 I believe And uh, uh, Du Bois uh, and the Crisis Magazine is the organ of the NAACP. And Du Bois is associated for, for that whole period with the notion of the talented 10th, which we mentioned briefly before. And Harrison also has a criticism of the talented 10th. And his criticism of the talented 10th in broad strokes are three. One, that this – and the talented 10th, according to Du Bois, is the gifted and talented of the race, you know, who should be uh, – exert leadership in various forms. There's a tighter quote to that. But that, that's essentially what um, Du Bois describes as a talented tenth. And ha- Harrison says, One, the talented tenth should come down from the amount cyanides and get amongst the people. Two, he says that the talented 10th hasn't provided the leadership that the race needs. And three, he goes the talented 10th is uh, too intimately tied to the notion of a colored elite, right? And he gets into that. And and not mean-spirited, but he's pointing out and basically making the argument we don't have to presume a drop of white. Blood preordained someone to be leader of the Negro race. Things along those lines. Um, so, you know, he's got his little warning notes, and there's some other things that little little signs. Um, both Harrison and du, Bo- uh, du Bois are in the Socialist Party in 1912. Harrison campaigns, you know, very vigorously. He's a leading campaigner in that campaign. Uh, du Bois leaves the Socialist in 1912 to support Woodrow Wilson. And if people are not familiar with that history, Woodrow Wilson, uh, you know, southern president from Virginia and Princeton. And he comes uh, he comes into the White House, brings Birth of a Nation in, uh, segregates federal workplaces. I was a postal worker for 33 years. Post office was one of the uh, – but other branches of the federal government also, and uh, invades Haiti, Dominican Republic um, sends troops into Mexico, down into the uh, Virgin Islands, right? So, I, I mean, they they come in and take over the Virgin Islands. So, it, it, and leads the U.S. into quote a war to make the world safer democracy. So, um, and then, but the the big issue that I think you're referring to in terms of Harrison and the NACP in this early period comes after the U.S. Um, is it goes into war or in the period that the u.s. that wilson's leading the u.s. into war now wilson wants the u.s. to go to war to make the world safe for democracy hubert harrison and william monroe Trotter, the protest leader from boston are um are opposed to what is being advocated they're both proponents of federal anti-lynching legislation and so they, their response and Harrison's response in The Voice, if people look at the founding meeting of Harrison's organization in 1917, The Voice, uh, the leaflet is, let's make the South safe for democracy. Here, you know, there's all this talk about uh, make, the, you make the U.S. safe for democracy, make the world safe for democracy. Harrison says, let's make the South safe for democracy. So as demobilization starts for World War I, uh, the first big issue um, that really rouses the black community, Community, the black press is the question of the officers training camps and whether they will remain segregated or whether they will be integrated now the NAACP at that time and for its first, for its first decade it, it was European Americans who were heads there were no black heads of the NAACP in its first decade and the head at that time was Joel E Spingarn who um, taught at Columbia University and um, uh, you know, was a prominent activist in the so in the um, uh, close to the socialists and uh, a major influence on Du Bois. Du Bois considered Spingarn his closest white friend. Spingarn uh, was the head of the NAACP, and when the issue of the uh, of integrating the officers' training camps came up. Uh, according to a fellow named Charles Flint Kellogg who writes a history of the NAACP um, the black community was on the verge of winning integrated officers training camps when Spingarn, speaking on behalf of the black community said we will accept the segregated camps right so that was the first big issue and that that created quite a stir amongst Harrison and and the people he was in and around Um, but the second big thing uh, was the question of federal anti-lynching legislation Harrison's Liberty League was advocating all your basic civil rights legislation which again become became very popular and heightened issues of struggle in the 60s and 50s, but his Liberty League was talking about enforcement of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment and federal anti-lynching legislation. Why they wanted federal... Hundreds of black people each year were being lynched in this period, right, and had been for quite some time, and why Harrison advocated federal anti-lynching, one of the reasons was... If there was federal lynching legislation, anti-lynching legislation, there was a chance of getting some justice. You would not have a situation such as the Emmett Till case when the culprits could walk into a court and joking and smiling, you know, and, and get away, you know, with no, no punishment, no conviction. Um, so, And William Monroe R- R- Trotter had a similar position on uh, the, the importance of federal anti-lynching legislation. So they decided, those two in particular, decided to hold, a Liberty Congress in uh, June, July of 1918. It would be the major Black protest effort during World War One. It would push for enforcement 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, and for the federal anti-lynching legislation. Now, Spingarn got wind of this. Now, I, I want to give a little more on Spingarn. Sping in, in the uh, during World War One. Um, the uh, according to the international socialist movement, the, the, uh, and Lenin would write that the major dividing line in the international socialist movement was between the pro-war and the anti-war socialists. Well, Spingarn is pro-war, right? So he's of uh, on that side, but he's more than simply pro-war. Joel E. Spingarn, for whom the NAACP to this day gives their award for outstanding achievement by a black American, was also, while head of the NAACP, was a major in military intelligence. That's that branch of the the government that monitored the black and the radical community. Parallels could be drawn to COINTELPRO later on, right? And so Spingarn is a major in military intelligence, and he doesn't want... He doesn't want to. He tries to talk Trotter into calling off this Liberty Congress that Harrison and he are organizing. Trotter would not call it off. They didn't even try to reach Harrison because they knew he wouldn't call it off. And the Liberty Congress winds uh, winds up meeting. It's men and women from 35 states, and they you know issue their um, demands and they you know petition Congress for federal uh, lynching legislation. But Spingarn, in order to steal the thunder. from the Liberty Congress organizes a um, colored editors' conference, which is to meet a week before the Liberty Congress, steal the thunder, issue some mild pronouncements. Um, it's, an, uh, it's not an all-black affair. FDR, who's uh, Assistant Secretary of the Navy at the time, is invited and some other people, but it is an all-male affair. No women attend that one, and they issue some statements. But in the course of that, what happens with Du Bois is the following, and, and what I'm going to say is not to be mean-spirited towards Du Bois, but it's part of the history I think we all should know, and And as I said, Spingon was the closest white friend of Du Bois, by Du Bois' own admission. So Spingon approaches Du Bois to get support for the Colored Editors Conference he wants to uh, convene. And he also talks further with Du Bois, and after their, their discussion, Du Bois who is now – because Booker T. Washington had died, right? And Du Bois is – people are looking to him as the leading black figure, you know, national figure, protest figure. Um, Du Bois puts in an application for a captaincy in military intelligence, again – Captaincy and military intelligence, that branch of the government that monitors the black and the radical community. He doesn't get it. He winds up not getting it. But while he's putting in in for that captaincy in an effort to seal the deal, if you will, the quid pro quo, you know, to, to do what has to be done to get it, he writes the, an editorial which is only one paragraph long, which is probably the editorial he is most embarrassed about his entire life. That editorial is entitled "Close Ranks," and it basically says, uh, "While this war lasts, let us forget our special grievances and close ranks behind the war effort." The special grievances, as Harrison pointed out in his rejoinder, and as everyone knew because Du Bois had defined them two months earlier in the crisis, were lynching, segregation, and disfranchisement. And here you have Du Bois saying, "Let us forget this." Right? Harrison tore into him in in uh, an editorial in his. Voice called the dissent entitled "The Descent of Doctor Du Bois," and basically what Harrison was saying was that you know we can differ on the war. I mean, you know, Harrison certainly thought that they, 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 they sh- there was room for differences on the war, but there's no way, reason that Du Bois had to take his position that far to you know uh, uh, forget our special agreements. And so Harrison wrote this scorching critique, and Randolph Chandler Owen, who was Randolph. Um, co-worker at the time later came to Chicago um, uh, Garvey all this younger generation of new Negro militants all followed Harrison's lead on this and were very critical of Du Bois and Du Bois lost a lot of standing uh, because of that, uh, that criticism and Du Bois would never really speak to or mention Harrison after that um, and uh, so this, this, what I'm talking about this Liberty Congress is in 1918 this is the period uh when the first volume that i've written ends people might want to read about it in detail um and uh then Harrison at that point in time is prepared to take his message down south he's he got a lot of heart and he's ready to take it down south and uh try and uh, you know do some work with people down there so but that's that's a major difference and uh and oh and uh, let me explain because people might not know why the NAACP didn't support federal anti-lynching legislation, but I document this in the book, and I quote again from Charles Flint Kellogg and others, um, and there's a number of documents. There's there's no really disputing the reason why. The reason that they did not support federal anti-lynching legislation in this period was the same one that Hubert Harrison had warned about as far back in 1910 because they didn't want to alienate Southern white support, right? And this is you – know, the documents are there, and you can read leaders, you know, explaining this, right? So uh, and uh, so Harrison's critique is very much on point, and it's another area where I think we have much in the 21st century to learn from Harrison and draw.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up about them not wanting to upset the Southern whites. And – I'm going to ask you a question, but be- and what I want you to do before you answer the question, number one, I want you to define white supremacy, and then the question that I have is <clears throat> with the New Deal. When the New Deal went through, and I've done a show on this, and I was talking about how the president made deals with both Democrats and the Republicans, in an effort to get the New Deal passed, and what they did was they took the funds and they took the rights of the New Deal and they passed them down to the states, so that the states could administer those programs. And this is how they were able to disenfranchise, you know, a number of blacks um, with the New Deal, and how this increased the wealth gap. You know, this was another catalyst to that besides homesteading. But again, it was about, you know, acquiescing. to the white southerners so what I want you to do is to define white supremacy and then let's talk about the statistics of what um, the employment was unemployment for blacks before the new deal
2: and then unemployment rates for blacks after the new deal excellent, excellent white supremacy in general and in the US under capitalism in the US is just a system uh, in which I think the ruling class uh, uses promotion of the white race ideologically um, and in various ways, uh, preferences throughout all aspects of society, promulgating white superiority, uh, just a broad agenda like that oppression of particularly of black people right and that's it. when we get into the origin of this whole thing we will see why and how that happened um, so it's it's very systematic it, it embraces white supremacism is more the ideas that go with white supremacy right um but it's just a systematic uh, uh differential in terms of treatment um, uh and and privilege right uh, that, that's in general what I would say regarding um, FDR and the New Deal. I think this is important when we when we talk about Allen. He talks about how in three previous crises – and he's referring to the 1870s, the 1890s, and the 1930s – the ruling class in this country, as people at the bottom of society, poor and laboring people, started to come together to push for change because conditions were getting so bad that the ruling class turns to white supremacy, uh, to – Beat back those struggles from below, basically by um, reinforcing white privileges, white race privileges, particularly amongst laboring people, um, because they they keep they they try they seek to keep the laboring. Uh, European Americans in tow right as uh, supporters of the system and opponents of uh, Struggle, you know class conscious struggle struggle with black people now during the depression what happens? And there 's a, a fellow like Columbia political scientist slash historian Ira Katz Nelson who's written a book when affirmative action was white which basically describes how during the depression Each and every program, actually from the Depression up until the 1960s, um, was shaped, each and every federal program was shaped in a white supremacist fashion. And this is part of the response to the New Deal because there were some very heightened struggles, particularly, um, you know, in the 30s as as people, as conditions continued to worsen. So when we look at, I worked in the labor movement for 33 years, and when we look at labor legislation, the Fair Labor Standards Act, the National Labor Relations Act, even Social Security until 1951, excluded by law domestic and agricultural workers. That's 75% of your black workforce, black and Latin workforce, essentially. Um, So that's one aspect of how this, uh, the white supremacist shaping of the response to the Depression. Another was uh, in terms of Uh, Federal monies for relief and, uh, you know, for people, uh, although it was federal money, it was controlled um, locally, and that meant particularly down south, there was tremendous disparity in what black people received versus what white people received. Um, Two other areas which I, I think are of tremendous importance are the GI Bill, which comes after World War II. And, but this is a continuation of this basic policy. In the GI Bill, uh, people can get a home with a zero down payment and a very low interest loan. The statistics for the New York, New Jersey area, which is where I live, but I'm sure they're the same for Chicago area, Atlanta, you know, pick a place in this country. Uh, For New York, New Jersey, there were 67,000 GI loans awarded, less than 100 go to families of color. Right? And so this is how you get the ring of lily-white suburbs around New York, but around every other city in this country, too. Uh, and um, then the final, the final one that I like to point out that, that a lot of people don't, Alan picks up on this and, and emphasizes it, and I did some research on this going back a ways. But in 1929, at the start of the Depression, at the start of the Great Depression, the black-to-white unemployment ratio was one-to-one. One black, one white, right? Um, And that makes sense if you think about it, because black people were brought to the U.S. uh, to be laborers, right? To to labor. Um, By 1947, after all those programs of FDR's New Deal, as well as the wartime effort and the post-war redeployment, by 1947, the black-to-white unemployment ratio was 2 to 1, um, which is which is what it's been in some variant ever since. It's all I've known. You've known throughout our lifetime. Two one, two point one to one, one point nine eight to one, whatever. And um, and this is all. I mean, this is largely through federal government policy and programs this is you know how this is being done i mean you know it gets implemented locally oftentimes but uh and this gets in very much to alan's argument about how uh the white race has was invented and maintained as a ruling class social control formation but uh I think that's a very crucial thing to understand, and in uh, in the uh, article on the developing conjuncture, which is on my webpage top left, people can see a fuller elaboration of this and what some of the implications are. Uh, one of the implications that Alan talks about is the importance of when people begin to come together in struggle, right? When we, you know, we're oftentimes, you know, there's... Uh, People do not much struggle, unfortunately, oftentimes in this country. And when there is struggle, oftentimes it's separated. But when people do begin to come together and unite to really push for badly needed demands. He, uh, what Alan argues is we have to be aware that the ruling class is going to consciously turn even more. So, I mean, the privileges exist you know, at all times in this country, but they are going to be moving to really reinforce and resubstantiate those to drive a wedge between any efforts at unity and struggle from below. So I, I think that's all very important uh, stuff. I'm glad you picked up on that
1: oh yeah most definitely and you know I've done shows talking about um the new deal and I based it on the book um, um when affirmative action was white so it was a part of my Privileged mutiny series and I believe it was um inner city blues but no that was a different one but anyway I did a series and I talked about that and I talked about how um, you know, it had been pushed down to the states to administer locally, and that's why you hear mm-hmm. a lot of the partiers and libertarians and so on and so forth talking about states' rights. And you know what I find interesting. I'm going to double back a little bit when you were talking about the Emmett Till tri- trial and how they came in joking. Only thing I can think about was Trayvon Martin and how they mm-hmm. opened up with the joke mm-hmm. and. It's, you know, it's, it's history repeating itself. So basically, you know, because I mean, I, I seguated uh, Theodore Allen um, on purpose when I had Unified White Supremacy. Um, one of the things, because I did shows on this as well, when I was talking about, you know, black communities that were prosperous, so you had Wilmington, you had Tulsa, you had Rosewood, you know, Black Wall Street and all of those, you, all of those mm-hmm. and how it basically turned into poor whites competing with blacks for jobs and how those lynch mobs, if you will, went after Mm -hmm. and burned down the businesses, burned down the homes, lynched the people, chased them out of the area, and then stole the property. And you see the same things happening nowadays. I mean, even with the mortgage crisis that we just went through, a lot of black wealth was snatched you know, with, with that mortgage crisis. And one of the things you were talking about, you said you believed that we were in a new phase. I'm looking at my notes, and you were talking about um, the 1930s, and I believe you said the 1880s and the 1890s, and I believe mm-hmm. you were talking about how you feel like basically we're sitting on a powder cake now, as far as um, race relations um, are
2: concerned. Can you expound a little bit on that? Well, okay, one thing I wanna just jump back also to one thing we just talked about and then I'll talk about today. Um, uh, When Roosevelt shapes, when the Roosevelt administration shapes all those New Deal policies, it's important to understand, uh, I think, that Roosevelt's base of support was basically urban city political machines and trade unions, but the third leg, so key, were the Southern Dixiecrats, right? Those white supremacists, you know, historically. And they're the people in the Tea Party now, right? They just switch parties, you know, after after the 60s and 70s, which Alan writes about. But it's important to understand, so that same shaping influence on all these policies, you know, that same white supremacist shaping influence um, is there. Now, I don't know if I was, uh, regarding your question, I don't know if if I was exactly saying – Uh, that we're on the verge of, uh, you know, racial, um, uh, you know, attacks or anything like that. I mean, they they go on daily. I understand that. But I I think – right now. uh, Unfortunately, I mean, conditions are so horrible for so many millions and millions of people in this country. um, But the struggle against it, the struggle against it is not so organized or effective or, you know, so large um, that we're Really shaping or impacting the way we would like to i don 't think um, the the course of where this country is moving i um i don't I think the ruling elite because I think they really ferment a lot of this stuff right and they really you know they just just like we do abroad, you know how the u s you know will ferment right things abroad um i i think they are more than prepared to flame these fires of ra- you know real racial pogroms and stuff what you describe is uh, very accurate and um harrison in particular wrote about tulsa which was in his period right the 1921 uh, in tulsa but um uh the i, I think we we can expect to see more of that if can, if struggle heightens, they will really try and inflame and, and play play that. Not that they don't, they wouldn't, you know, it would not happen before then or anything like that, or it wouldn't be used and played upon because it's a theme. And every day we get hit in the media, you know, all the the, the racist innuendos, the the, ra- right. the direct race comment um, i mean we see it, it it just so permeates this society but um i don't see i i don't mean to be saying i think there's great big uh race clashes right now amongst the majorities of peoples or anything like that so um i don't know if that's what you were okay.
1: implying
2: <laughs> <it>, yeah i <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think, i i think I, you I don't yeah i'm sorry
1: No, no, I was just going to say, you know, what's happening nowadays with, you know, the working class, because the main, well, one of the premises for the Tea Party, it's basically about jobs for white men in particular. And then we're seeing all of these, you know, white men um, um, creating these atrocities. You know, it was just one yesterday who went on a shooting spree. You know, and so, you know, I'm just looking at what's happening, you know, in society and sitting back and waiting to see what's going to happen next.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, I can understand uh, that. Yeah, I, I mean, I I see that. They play on it. They um, – and conditions are um, – you know, I think conditions are worsening. Again, that's one of the themes in my my longer piece. Uh, you know, if we look at any major statistics, the gap between rich and poor is at record proportions in this country. The unemployment figures, and these all get played with nowadays because people are out of the workforce and everything, um, but they're very, very high and everything, every issue shaped in a white supremacist fashion. 50% of kids in this country are going to grow up on food stamps, 90% of black kids on food stamps. I mean, staggering numbers at some point or another in their lives, right? And the incarceration rates and, you know, everything we look at is is the conditions are not improving and um for working people poor and working people and so markedly shaped in a white supremacist fashion that, that's all i mean and i i so I, I i think and i'm i'm really hope you know um i'm looking for a particularly younger generation you know to start you know stepping forward a little more on this they're really up against so much right i mean i think there's a role for all of us you know and i try each day to contribute as I can, but we've got to start, you know, pushing our struggle out there a little bit more. I, I think everyone would agree on that,
1: right? Exactly, exactly. And if you can, can you define race? Because I know you expanded it more than just race being a social
2: construct. Right. This is very important from Allen's work, um, and Allen's on the invention of the uh, white race and his other writings. And I talk about this. Allen argues he, he responded to a 1997 article by a leading academic uh, from Stanford, who said, who wrote. Uh, something to the effect essentially what he wrote was uh, the notion that race is a social construct is now an academic cliche. Everybody talk about it. Race is a social construct. Alan says, no, nah, that's not enough. That's not enough to say that. He, he says it's important to understand that the white race is a ruling class social control formation. It was set up and it is maintained by the ruling class to serve their needs. Now we can get into the specifics of how it gets set up in a a bit, but why does Alan think that's important? Because if you just say it's a social control formation and uh, you don't say it's ruling class driven, you leave the back door open for all kinds of, if you will, racist, you know, interpretations. The Dinesh is, the Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the people who will argue, yeah, well, race is a social construct, but what would you expect if so-and-so are inferior or so and so, you know, something like that, or if they culturally, they're culturally inferior? You know, it leaves the back door open for all these real racist You know, explanations, blaming victims, if you will, rather than putting it at the doorsteps of those whose interest it really serves. And I think we should be clear that with the gap between rich and poor at record proportions, the interest being served by the current white supremacist setup in this country, which so, you know, uh, uh, keeps down, presses down on struggle, the the uh, interests served are those of uh, very much of the very elite ruling class. That's the paramount interest being served. Um, so Alan, Alan makes that argument. It's not simply enough to say it's a social construct, but it's a ruling class social construct. And let me explain a little more, because What Allen is arguing against, Theodore W. Allen, in his body of work, and for those not familiar with Allen, again, you can find lots of his writings on my webpage. I have three whole sections down the right column on Harrison and three on Allen. But Allen really did pioneering work on the notion of white skin privilege starting in the mid-1960s. And this uh, and his whole life until he dies in 2005 you know he continues to develop his analysis and Alan's analysis of white privilege is far different from that which is the jargon of many uh today people who grew up in the period of the the invisible knapsack and things like this in 1986 1987 and since then and it it it, primarily it differs because it's so much more rooted in class analysis also and um and class struggle approach to history you know uh and uh, it's. I think it's important for people to understand the two main arguments that Alan is going after. And I'll speak here also from my own experience. As I've indicated, I worked for many years in the labor movement. And when you, I'm working amongst European-American workers, the two main ideological uh, arguments that are used in various forms – to undermine struggle by European Americans against white supremacy. You know, people might be ready to step forward and show solidarity and everything like that, but the two main arguments that are used to undermine those efforts are the argument that racism is innate. Because if racism is innate, why fight it, right? And that's, that, that's, the, that's what Alan was hinting at in what we just discussed with uh, why it's not simply enough to say it's a social construct because that'll get back into all varying forms of racism being innate, you know, or something like that. But the other argument that Alan goes after and which I think is crucial, and I think it's crucial for people today to start addressing in, in much more serious manner, and this is what I try and document through so much of my work, is the notion that for european american workers for working people, not for the ruling elite, not for those you know who write under them and serving their interests but but for the european American workers, their interests are not served by white supremacy or white privileges, and they they would be far better off far we all would be far better off showing true solidarity with black workers black people uh, Latinos and the like and so allen argues what allen argues and what he's argued since the 1960s well we have to un- we have to understand that for european American workers these privileges are not a benefit but it's like a shot of heroin right it, it's it's bad it's it's a poison bait and this argument has to be made uh, and and it can be documented and shown i in, in if again if people go to my webpage i use examples i have on that front page i have i talk about the work we did in the post office from this perspective that i'm articulating and how we made tremendous gains amongst postal mail handlers i come out of a 4000 worker facility i was elected the head of the mail handlers union there we waged struggles we coordinated state anti apartheid we we brought people into work in our national office we wage struggles or you know around the white supremacy gender oppression we I mean I, I try and document but it, you know it's key because everything gets set up with that white preference you know whether it's who's going to get overtime in the workplace or anything like that so you have to challenge that stuff and you know emphasize not is going to be done fairly and equally and when you do Some people are ready to come to blows, you know, if you're cutting into somebody's overtime, some of the white workers, right? But, and everybody else is watching, is this going to last or not? Is this for real? But if it is for real, and if you consistently do it, you build a new and much higher level of unity, which I, you know, I'm very convinced it's very possible to do, but... What Alan's articulating is so important, and what it's not just a theory that he puts out. Because then what he does, he starts articulating the notion of white skin privilege in sixty five. But what happens is in nineteen sixty eight, a book comes out by a fellow named Winthrop Jordan, Winthrop D. Jordan, and that book is White Over Black. American Attitudes Towards the Negro, 1550 to 1812. You can see by the title, Jordan equates um, white with American, right? And what Jordan's book is, it wins a National Book Award and several other prizes. It is the intellectual university ideological response to the civil rights black liberation of the 60s. Because what Jordan argues in his book is that Racism, white supremacy, is an unthinking decision. It's innate, you know. That, that and again, if 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 that's true, if what Jordan says is true, then why fight it? You can't change anything, right? It's like disempowering, right? So, what Allen does in around sixty-eight and. People, again, should know, when I, say, when I said earlier that Allen's developing his work on white skin privilege from the 65, 65 period, well before the stuff that comes out in the 1980s, 86 and everything... Um, Again, you'll, I think you'll find the link on my webpage, but as early as 1969, the New York Times is running a major article on how the Students for a Democratic Society, which Allen's work was influencing, were waging an all-out national campaign against white skin privilege. So it's, the idea was very current and very influential amongst uh, the student movement and the New Left and everything going way back. Um, but what Allen says is after after Jordan comes out with his book, making... You know, big historical tome saying, you know, race is, it's an unthinking decision. Alan says, nope, i got to stop everything. i got to go deal with this argument because this is crucial. So Alan then goes back to 17th century Virginia uh, and to even to Ireland. Uh, we can talk about that also to talk about the development of the in, he talks about the invention of the white race in the latter part of the 17th century in Virginia, particularly Virginia, Virginia and Maryland, and the, the origin of racial oppression in Anglo-America. That, that's here in, in what we now know as the U.S., again, Virginia and Maryland he's talking about. And that's what his two-volume life's work, his major work, The Invention of the White Race, is two volumes. The first volume is Racial Oppression and Social Control. The second volume is the origin of racial oppression in Anglo America, and it's masterful. And what what I appreciate about Harrison, as I do with uh, about Allen, as I do with Harrison, is their intellectual integrity. Um, and again. Alan, like Harrison, is an autodidact, Uh, whereas Harrison never goes to college a day in his life. The story is that Alan went one day and found it too confining and left. (laughs) Whether whether that's true (laughs) or not, I'm not sure. But but, so Alan Alan goes and he spent 25 to 30 years, you know, 25 years essentially, fine-tuning later on, but doing primary research particularly in Virginia, goes through all these colonial records, and when he writes if people get a chance to look at the book, and I've written for Alan's two volumes on the invention of the white race, we, a new version just came out in 2012 from Verso Books. It's available online, various bookstores. And I did new introductions. I did, extended the index to great uh, length. But I also put in internal study guides because Alan's work is very dense. It's about 30%, 35% notes and footnotes. So it's very serious scholarship. And what he also does is he makes it a point to he knows what the arguments are going to be for whatever analysis he's developing so he takes the countering argument and he raises them forward basically in their best light if you will and then tries to address them not mean spirited not name calling but try and address them with fact and from their historical record so what his basic his his basic three theses are, the core of the invention of the white race is the following but there's much much more he says um, he, he, first he writes uh, and let me preface with this when he writes on the back cover of the first volume when it first comes out when the first Africans arrive in Virginia in 1619 there were no white people there nor would there be for another 60 years and what he's getting at is, is the following one the word white doesn't appear in a Virginia colonial record until 1691 does not appear right you're they're Dutchman uh, English Irish right not white but it's not simply that the word doesn't appear the white race as we know it was not functioning uh, Lerone Bennett jr. Uh, Chicago based for so many years uh, senior editor at Ebony for so many years um, in one of his very wonderful books, one which Alan draws on and, and thinks really nails the essence of what Alan's getting at, uh, Bennett's book, The Shaping of Black America, talks about how in that, that early period in Virginia, there was such similarity of condition for European and African-American laboring people. Bennett points out it was no Garden of Eden But, you know, there was much similarity. And then Bennett articulates the same three points that Allen articulates. uh, And Allen cites Bennett, you know, for for his insight in this. But the basic argument is the white race was invented as a ruling class social control formation to help them maintain social control. Uh, And what Allen argues, this was done in uh, the period – Particularly after Bacon's Rebellion, which was 1676, 1677, Bacon's Rebellion uh, followed a, a period of about uh, uh, 10 to 15 years when there were 10 to 12 laboring class or bond servant revolts and rebellions. And and um, in Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia, the governor. Uh, was forced to flee Jamestown the capital was burned and the rebels controlled six seventh of the land for nine months so there was a major problem of social control in Virginia and and there was solidarity between European and African-American workers and what happens is in response to that is to turn to really establishing this white race so the first thesis of Allen is the white race was invented as a ruling class social control formation. His second thesis is the way this was done was by the ruling class conferring race privileges on European-American workers was the key. On the workers was the key, because the people at the top are going to get the privileges anyway in a society generally, right? But um, the, the the key to holding this white race thing together was the privileges extended to the laboring class Europeans and the third prong of uh, an Allen's analysis and which is very important but you also see in Lerone Bennett jr. in the shaping of black America is the notion that the the setup of this uh, of the uh, system with racial privileges and the racial oppression of African Americans was not only not in the interest of African Americans but it was ruinous to the interest of European American laborers that it's Definitely. not in their interest, and this is crucial, I think, for those of us who would like to struggle for change, but these arguments have to be made, because if it's in their interests, if it's in their interest, then, then they're not going to oppose it, right? And that's what they get fed every day, what you were talking about, you know, earlier, and what we see on TV, it's a constant rat-tat-tat, uh, you're white, you know, you look at how you benefit, blah, blah, blah. People getting crushed, right? But they're selling them this. Exactly. They're selling them this. Not that there's not tremendous disparity in every aspect of life between how african-americans are treated and how european-americans but it's not in the european-americans laboring people's interest to maintain this They're, what's in their interest is to show solidarity struggle with african-americans for serious social change and that's alan's basic thesis, and uh, but there's much much more to the analysis
1: Oh yeah, most definitely, most definitely, and I would be remiss if I didn't have you talk about this um about the new social status laws, you know, and who and who was um in charge of making sure that information was given to the general public, so if you could talk <laughs> a
2: little bit about that. Boy, you've read this. You really really get this. This is wonderful. Yeah. So what happens? They start implementing new laws, right? And uh, all kinds of things which extend privileges to the European Americans, uh, extend further uh, limitations, restrictions on uh, people of African descent. All of this is being done. But then how do they get it out? Now, this is back, we're talking the late, late 1600s, early 1700s. How do they get get it out? And here comes the role of the church and the state, if you will, because they're pasting it on the, I, yeah, for your your audience in particular, this will make a bigger smile, I'm sure, but they're pasting it on the doors of the churches, right? And, and, uh, they're, they're reading them and, and pasting them at the courthouses and this is how they promulgate and propagandize this white race and, um, Um, So Alan Alan, uh, does a major, you know, analysis of that in great detail. One thing he talks about also is... um in order to respond to um, Winthrop Jordan, he talks about the importance of a, what he calls the Gooch letter, although he's saying even without this, you know, the, all the evidence is there. And there's much documentation that has disappeared, people can't find, you know, of correspondence. But one of the key things that Allen emphasizes is um, under racial oppression, which is what he's saying gets developed in the U.S., um, And this is what we see codified. Let me step back for a second, if I may, and just draw a contrast between, I wanna go back to Hubert Harrison for a second. Um, Hubert Harrison comes from St. Croix. And when he comes in 1900, He comments, as does Claude McKay, who comes from Jamaica later, Marcus Garvey, a lot of the early 20th century Afro-Caribbean immigrants. They comment, they're shocked by what they see in terms of the white supremacy and racism in this country, how vicious and virulent it is. I use the McKay quote quite often. McKay says, I never encountered such a bitter racial hatred as I did when I came to the U.S. And the reason is that the social control system is maintained differently in the Anglo Caribbean and in than in the Anglo American plantation colonies, in Virginia and Maryland. Um, I use Saint Croix often because it's an example I'm familiar with, but that's where Harrison comes from. And when Harrison, the, the Saint Croix of the 19th century that Harrison, you know, is growing up in, is coming out of uh, a period. Um, of slavery also, but it, it, the way it was set up in St. Croix, in St. Croix you only had 5% of the population was European-American, basically at the top of society, 80% largely black population at the bottom of society, 15% so-called mulattoes played kind of an intermediate stage down there. The 5% Europeans couldn't control the 95%, so they traw- sought to utilize the 15% uh, to help them maintain social control. Control. And this worked for a while, but when push came to shove, the uh, free coloreds, as they were called in St. Croix, sided with the black plantation laborers, and this led to emancipation, you know, and break from the system of slavery down there, as had happened essentially in Saint-Domingue, in, in Haiti, and, you know, goes, goes on, that struggle goes on elsewhere. Now, um, so, and... Whereas in, in the U.S., things are very different. Now, how, what's the difference? A, Alan's first volume is on uh, social control, right? It's on uh, racial oppression and social control. Now, social control was maintained in St. Croix. It's manifested in certain ways. First, the principal instrument of social control in St. Croix was the militia. And the militia was composed very uh, primarily of people of African descent, right? Whereas in the U.S., in Virginia, where it becomes the U.S., in Virginia and Maryland, the slave patrol was lily white, right? In St. Croix, there was a a policy by the ruling elite of promotion of a sector of the African descended population. Harrison's actually born on an estate in St. Croix that was owned by two men of color. You would not find that basically in Virginia, right? Um, because exactly what you were talking about, even going into the 20th century, Tulsa, you know, these other places, when a black community starts building and developing and stuff, it gets torched, right? It, it, there's no allowance for, you know, building and development of things, you know, historically in the U.S. or going back anyway. So, um, uh, in, 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 whereas in St. Croix, there's a policy of promotion of a sector of the African-descended po- uh, population. That's not the case in Virginia and Maryland, the pattern-setting colonies. And um, the other, the third ingredient is in, um, in St. Croix in 1834, there is actually a law passed, an Edict of Full Equality, which at least nominally grants full equality between Europeans and free coloreds, right? In contrast, in the U.S., what do we have? We have the Dred Scott decision, 1856-57, which says that no, essentially, that no black person has any rights that a white is bound to respect. So these are different systems of social control. What Alan describes The U.S. is as racial oppression when it comes down so totally on all black people, right? Whereas in St. Croix or in Jamaica, Barbados, it develops into national oppression. It's a distinction in terms of who is playing uh, the the key role in maintaining social control. And what Alan argues, one of the things, and it's something I posted on Facebook uh, within the past week, um, the... uh, What's important for people in this country to know is that England alone of all the European colonizing powers was shipping out a large... number of its own workers to Virginia and Maryland and things like that so in the 17th century the majority of the chattel bond laborers in Virginia were European American and I I really want to get people out of this notion that these people are willingly signing indentures Alan points out that you because you know that's another mental gymnastic thing that we're fed growing up here indentured servants and black slaves right you know that's one of the divisions we're taught But, um, the majority of European Americans who uh, had chattel bond servitude imposed on them did not come with indentures and indentures. When you willingly sign a contract into becoming chattel, that wasn't going on. That's not what was happening. And, um, But the majority of chattel bond servants throughout the 17th century were European-American, people who could be bought and sold three, four, and five years. Conditions were horrible for them, as they were for the African-Americans or Africans, people coming over. Um, But uh, what happens is in the wake of Bacon's Rebellion – Uh, they start extending these racial privileges but they're not promoting all these European American laborers out of the laboring class they're just selling them this white race thing right you you know certain privileges privileges which are rights back in England become privileges race privileges here in the US and Mm -hmm. uh, one of the key things I want to get back to Gooch which is how I started on this Gooch was a governor in Virginia and at a certain point in uh, 1723 there's another set of laws that passed and one of the laws uh, takes the right of voting away from free property holding Negroes if you will right and what most people don't know is that for over 80 years black people in Virginia who met the qualifications could vote right it's going way back and this was now taken away and when they send the laws because it's still a colony right of uh, england they had to send the laws back to england to you know and and some questions arose in england well if these people you know have property and they you know, why can't they vote even in england they didn't quite understand what was going. and gooch is the governor and he explains in correspondence back to them this was done to impose a perpetual brand on free Negroes and people of color uh, to perpetually brand them. So what Alan comments uh, as, he's, as he's pulling all these facts together is surely this was no unthinking decision, which is a reference to Jordan who's trying to argue that uh, white supremacy racism is an unthinking decision. He said, no, this is conscious ruling class policy. And what they're doing is they're, uh, they're attacking The entire black population, because um, you know, if if certain, if black, if a sector of the black population is uh, allowed to rise to a certain level, and things like this, this does pose challenges to maintaining that white race thing amongst the European American workers. Right? Uh, They 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 like like to envision themselves, or what, what is generally put forth is that any, you know, as we saw in the Dred Scott decision, uh, no white has any, uh, no black has any rights that a white is bound to respect. Sorry if I rambled on that.
1: Oh, no, 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 no worries. And, you know, um, I want you, there's, there's so much more that I want to ask you, but I believe this right here is extremely pertinent. Can you talk about Elizabeth Key and expound on common law principles?
2: Ah, thank you. Boy, did you – Yeah, this is wonderful. Yes, Elizabeth Key. This is a crucial case in Virginia, which Alan documents at some length, and it's crucial to our understanding of family relations, particularly black family gender relations, and – I, I just want to comment. When I was growing up and going to school, uh, there was a, a book by a fellow named Gutman, as I recall, right? The Black Family and Slavery and Freedom. And it starts, the story he starts telling basically is in 1790, I think. But it doesn't mention this case. And this case is crucial. Um, first off, uh, and well, I just want to say, and I think your readers will be very interested, if you get to read Allen's uh, invention of the white race, he pays particular attention to oppression of women, various forms, both in going back in England, under chattel bond servitude in uh, Virginia, and then under uh, the development of racial slavery. And, and there are certain key uh, distinctions and differences in these stages which I think people will be fascinated to learn about. But the Elizabeth Key case is important. Elizabeth Key is born, um, I believe her mother was African, African American, her father was European, European American, and uh, they die. And she was a chattel bond servitude of a uh, of a, a, a limited term chattel bond servant uh, when you know while they were alive, and that meant that in that period people would be serving five, six, seven years. They could be bought and sold and stuff. But when her time ended, you know she would be would or under normal circumstances would be free. But the people who had who took possession of her, um, her of her status, right? Of her, um, tried to extend her servitude, right, and to extend it to um, lifetime bond servitude. And there would be these efforts before the full development of the system of lifetime hereditary chattel bond servitude there would be efforts to extend servitude particularly on vulnerable people but the whole process you know went on for a long period and there was struggle against it in various forms one of the things that Alan points out is in the 17th century um, there were many forms of Um, struggle available to black people and that the um, the status was of African Americans in 17th century Virginia for most of the 17th century was indeterminate in that it was still being struggled out, it wasn't fixed in law. You know, there there was no slavery in England. There there had been a, there had been efforts in England to impose slavery on English in 1547 to 1550, and it had been beat back. And there there, there had been a, uh, in Scotland, starting in the early 1600s for almost 200 years, there was slavery imposed by you know on Scottish salt pan workers, um, but essentially there was no, you know, there was what were called the rights of the English to to be free laborers, right? And so in in Virginia, uh, when Elizabeth Key is, um, you know, her status is being uh, de- determined after the passing of her parents, um, and they try to extend her servitude to life. She petitions, which is one of the avenues of redress that was open to African-American people in that period. This would all be taken away later on, right? The right to go to court, to testify, all part of the whole system of racial oppression and, and race privileges that later gets established. But in the early period, she could go petition. So she argues, and she argues, that she should be free on two grounds one that she had been baptized now that argument was one that sometimes prevailed sometimes didn't there was you know a history both ways in terms of that but that was an argument that certainly could be made and she did make it but the second argument which was very crucial is she argued that um, in English common law, which is what England bases its system on for the most part, right? Uh, in English common law, the status of the child follows that of the father. In Latin, and forgive me for this, it's partis sequitur patrum. The status of the child follows the status of the father. And she argued that she should be free because her father was free, right? And she prevails, and she wins. And then, and and she's is freed, right? But then what happens is the ruling elite, as they want to start moving towards lifetime bond servitude, realize this is not the way we want to go. So they, over the next period of years, about six years or so, they change the policy, right? And then what they start instituting and implementing in Virginia is the status of the child follows that of the mother. And why is that important? Because then if you have lifetime bond servitude and uh, the mother, who, you know, if it's, if it's an owner, an overseer, or whomever is taking advantage of this African, African-American woman, the offspring will still be enslaved. This is a qualitative change, a qualitative change right here in Virginia in terms of um, treatment of women of the family, of the offspring, and people should know about it uh, because with both the the decision in the Virginia Key case as well as a number of laws that took away the right of self-defense for, quote, Negroes, right, in this period, it really made the black family so subject and so vulnerable to attack and, and uh, uh, you know, with incentive, if you will, you know, in terms of the offspring will be enslaved. So it's a qualitative change, very significant for people who study race and gender issues, I think.
1: Excellent, excellent. And it's just so much to go over. And I'm going to ask you about the Ludenburg Amendment a little bit later, but I have a question for (laughs) her. Great. Great. You're on it. (laughs) Oh, yes, definitely. But why are Americans anti-socialism?
2: Well, that, that, um, in that Developing Conjuncture article, and I encourage people to look at it, Alan makes very convincing argument, which uh, you know I basically agree with, and, try and I try and deliberate. But Alan argues that the main reason for the low level of class consciousness and progressive thinking in this country is white supremacy. That, you know, it, it ties the – he says this white race – is an all-class formation, which serves the interests of the ruling class. So you take a concept, if you will, like the white worker. As long as they're defining as white, they're they're uh, aligned with the ruling class. You you want to emphasize the worker and break from that white thing, right? And this is what I mean. This is where Alan takes it. He he argues, and if you read see some of my videos, you'll see I say it. There's nothing positive or progressive in identifying as white. There is nothing positive or progressive in identifying as white. And Alan, so what Alan argues is that the key retardant. To social uh, to class consciousness in this country has been white supremacy, white supremacism, and uh, that this is the struggle, uh, an important struggle that has to be waged. and, and you know it's got to be waged in practice, but it's also got to be raised in theory, in history. That's why, you know coming to understand a little of how the white race gets invented will help us, I think, to undo you know, the evil consequences of this this monster. He calls it an incubus, a devil, right? The uh, white race. Um, So Alan, you know, is challenging. He challenges white identity. Um, Again, he says there's nothing positive in identifying as white. Uh, The struggle for people of European American descent is to be human you know, and for, that poses a challenge to white supremacy. You know, and he's not saying it's the same for everybody else. For a black person to identify as black poses a challenge to white supremacy, right? But so he's, he's um, it's very important arguments. And I think people want to read this, you know, I think. Uh, but so, he, and again, his argument for the low level of class consciousness is essentially white supremacism reinforced by the white skin privilege, you know. And, and, and he emphasized reinforced because the white privileges uh, give a, a material basis to the ideology. You know, it's it, it, it's something that can be pointed to, right? Uh, not just simply a bad idea, not just simply an idea.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the Ludenburg Amendment and how – Some immigrants are given special refugee status and how those same programs are not available to, um, you know, basically, um, um, disadvantaged youth, you know, black youth, particularly.
2: Yes. Yeah, Um, and and this article, again, links to it on my webpage, but this was run, I think, in Black Agenda Report, Black Commentator. Lautenberg Amendment uh, was designed by Frank Lautenberg, who was a senator... Uh, from New Jersey for many years, former head of a uh, pr- prominent head of one of the major uh, Jewish organizations in this country. And the Lautenberg Amendment, uh, I believe in 1989, I don't have right in front of me all my notes, but 1989, I think it was first um, established, and it's been re-upped every year. But they bury it. Even when I tried to get information from Lautenberg's office, oh, they didn't know what I was talking about, <laughs> things like this, because it gets buried <laughs> in all these other bills. But um, what it does is it gives special refugee status to certain groups, and I'll get into that in a second. But as we know, we hear every day the phrase illegal alien, right? I mean, it it rolls off the tongue, and and so many people, particularly – people from uh, the Americas, Latinos from the Americas, people from the Caribbean, from Africa, from Asia, uh, you know, trying to come to this country and and all kinds of, and even the ones who are here, people who have been born here and grown up here, all kinds of problems with status and, you know, legality and citizenship. Um, And for most immigrants, for immigration is basically on a case-by-case basis. But, uh, Lautenberg, uh, had passed through, um, Congress, uh, this Lautenberg amendment, which gives special status to certain select groups, um, uh, but they're, for the most part, they're minor groups like Hmong from uh, Cambodia. You know, religion. It's supposed to be based on religion. The primary group were Jews from the former Soviet Union that are extended these privileges, right? And rather than coming in on a case by case basis, they come in in as uh, under refugee status on a blanket uh, a blanket coverage. So, for instance, you could be. A Jew from the former Soviet Union who comes to New York and lands at Kennedy International Airport without a paper in your pocket and claim coverage under the Lautenberg Amendment and be processed in that track. Now, the, for the people who come in under the Lautenberg Amendment, it's a, it's a quick pass to citizenship, right? Um, and uh, they don't have to go through any of the, the turmoil or, and difficulties or nothing, uh, approaching the turmoil and difficulties of other people. But they not only are on a path to citizenship, but they are eligible for all kinds of federal programs, including welfare, public housing, and things of this sort. Now, in my article, I point out... That these are the same things, and and Michelle Alexander in her book on New Jim Crow talks about, you know, a young uh, youth, you know, on 125th Street in Harlem could get picked up for uh, two ounces of pot and be be denied access to all these things, depending on where they're living in the country, possibly for the rest of their life, or all these other immigrants coming in and they don't get access to any of this. When I wrote the article... Um, I, first off, I wrote the article because I thought people should know about it, and it's really my hope that particularly people who work in the area of immigrants, immigration, uh, will use it, you know, in struggle. Because the basic argument I think comes to to twofold. One. If you think the Lautenberg Amendment is good, and for, uh, you know there's more details to that. For instance, the Lautenberg Amendment claims that it's for religious persecution, and I should mention this since we're doing this radio show. It's it's supposed to be based on religious persecution, but as I point out in my article of the 400,000 and some odd uh, Jews who came to the New York area under uh, covered under this period, or New York, it may have been more may have been to the U.S. in the period that I I looked at, fully uh, 20% the ones coming from the Soviet Union profess no religious belief because, again, the Soviet Union, you know, the church wasn't so prominent in the Soviet Union or synagogues. I mean, it was supposed to be, you know, uh, not so religious over there anymore. And 20%... Um, came and pro- professed no religious belief, but they're still covered under this legislation, which is supposed to be for religious uh, people who are, per- are re- persecuted religiously. So in the article, what I and I cited also, besides Michelle Alexander, uh, people from uh, one of the legal attorneys for one of the uh, Latino groups, the major Latino groups, and the disparity in treatment between uh, Latino immigrants and people covered under the Lautenberg Amendment. And... The basic thing I was trying to get at and how I think it could be used by activists is if people are going to maintain and defend and argue that the Lautenberg Amendment is good and fair and just, why not extend it broadly to everybody, right? Or if exactly. if, if, if you don't want to make that argument, then I, I think we should constantly, day after day after day, Point out the double standard and the disparity in treatment and get on you know put pressure wherever we can on the newspapers, the press, the politicians. What are you doing about this? Why do we have such a double standard right if, if that you know and so I, I wanted to get that article out, but I, I did so, realizing there are people who work in this area who would you know be better able to use, you know do work in, in this than, than i i mean it's not my area of expertise, exactly. But I, I, I know how to research. <laughs> <laughs> well, we
1: have Donald Wright on the line with us. Donald Wright is one of the principals in People of Color Beyond Faith. and He's also the founder of the Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers, which is going into his fifth year, Donald? Yeah, right.
2: Hi, yeah. Donald. Hey, how
0: you doing, Jeffrey?
2: Yeah, good, a, good. i I've seen you on the Internet at various times, <laughs> so pleased to be speaking with you. Yes, yeah, thank you. I, I first
0: want to share my thoughts and, and appreciation for the work you've done, uh, particularly with the historical perspective of Hubert Harrison. Um, having a chance to um, to read the information that you provided has just uh, been so enlightening, and I, and I appreciate it so much, uh, particularly uh, in my newfound way of life, in uh, the way I transitioned away from normalcy and uh, being able to discover the, the the life and and thoughts and the uh, basically the teachings of Hubert Harrison has really helped me a lot. Uh, so I, I want to say I appreciate the work you're doing. Um,
2: well, thank you, but there's going to be much more coming. You're going to love Harrison.
0: <laughs> well, I I can't wait. So uh, I, I'll be I'll be first in line to uh, to get right. that that new edition. Um, but I, I got a couple of questions, um, and then I, I'll hang up and listen. Um, the first one is regarding uh, Hubert Harrison. What has been your opportunities to take this uh, this information, from, particularly from such a Black history perspective, uh, to take this to uh, campuses on uh, historically Black colleges and universities? And then the other question is regarding uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Allen, in his work, does he offer any real um, specifics or any details in terms of uh, solutions to eliminating white supremacy? Um, So I'll let you kind of uh, give me some thoughts on those, and and
2: I'll I'll hang up and listen. It's it's a pleasure to speak with you, by the way. And likewise, Donald, and excellent questions. And just very briefly, um, regarding taking this to – um, uh, historically black colleges and universities. Um, yes, I've had some opportunity, and the response has been wonderful. I've been to Howard a couple times. I've been to Morehouse a couple times. I've been to Delaware State. At Morehouse, they had some featured event um, for, for their uh, their senior graduation event or some such, and um, and at uh, we've had. Uh, I think they were standing room only audiences at, um, at, at, at I can't remember Delaware state cause it, w- it was a little bit off site, but at Howard and Morehouse, we, uh, the rooms were packed, right. And there was great interest. And I'd speak about both Harrison and Allen. Um, and I'm more than willing to go, uh, wherever there's interest. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm old. I live modestly. I'm not. I'm not in this for the money. I'm not trying. I I want to get this out and I want to share, particularly with the younger generations, because those are the people who are going to really carry this on. And I think. I just want to say, I think they're going to be the ones most receptive to Harrison and Allen. And the reason is, amongst others. Uh, One of the reasons is if somebody's an an established academic and they've been teaching for 30 or 40 years and never mentioned Hubert Harrison, it's tough for them to all of a sudden say, gee, this Harrison is really important, because people might ask, well, well, where have you been for 30 or 40 years? So I think it's going to be particularly the younger students and the younger scholars and, uh, you know, people again, from the bottom up, who are really going to be pushing that. And I see it if people Google Hubert Harrison, Hubert H. Harrison, or Theodore W. Allen, and you see the number of links and hits. I mentioned in the Harrison Volume 1 when I first started out, it was single digits, double digits, and things like this. And it's in hundreds of thousands. So it's constantly growing, right? Um, And the appreciation and the interest. And that's why I feel part of my responsibility besides going out And, you know, speaking wherever people are interested is to get Harrison in his own words, make it just publicly available, get his writings freely available. That's part of the agreement, not getting paid a penny for doing this thing with Columbia, but all his writings, permanent, searchable database online, you know, that's the goal. Um, Regarding um, the solutions from Alan, uh, at the end of my Developing Conjuncture article, um, I... Uh, I draw from Harrison and Alan, and we get back to what Kim cited earlier, the touchstone concept, where every area we look at in society is shaped in a white supremacist fashion, and what are we going to do about it? So as a general um, as a general guide, and this I get the same thing from Alan, and I use quotes from Alan to talk about that towards the end, I think it's crucial uh, that... Um, as we wage, first off, I think that the civil rights, black liberation struggle is, a, as it was in the '60s, as Harrison foreshadowed, it is a catalyst for social change in this country. It is a key catalyst. Uh, but I also think that it's in the interest of European American workers to be not only supporting that struggle, but You know, coming together with people where they can to push, you know, issues of class and opposition to this system forward. So I think what we want to do is, and I talked about this again in that article on my webpage about the work in the post office, there was not an issue we looked at. In the post office, amongst postal workers, that wasn't shaped in a white supremacist fashion. So whether it was light-duty denials, um, treatment of pregnant women – I'm sorry if I lost you uh, – overtime – Uh, penalties for disciplines or anything. Every issue we would raise, not only the issue, but the issue of white supremacy and how it's shaping it, and hammer away and hammer away and draw people together, uniting in that struggle. I think Harrison, when he talks about uh, building unity way back, he talks about from the bottom up, And he talks about, you know, it's unity of purpose. You might not have organizational unity because there's so many organizations and stuff. But if we can get a certain direction forward, and Alan talks the same thing, understanding the centrality of the struggle against white supremacy in every struggle that we take on, challenging the the very disparate, you know, the capitalist order that is so severely uh, hindering and hurting poor, working people, people of color. So every issue we look at, the centrality of the struggle against white supremacy in the context of those struggles. That's, that's the direction. I think from that, leadership will emerge you know, <laughs> a little bit.
1: <laughs> excellent, excellent. And one, one other thing, because I would be remiss if I did not ask you this question. How
2: has white
1: supremacy hurt working-class whites?
2: well it it 's hurt them, uh, and I try and talk about this again in the article on the developing conjuncture but if we look if we look at the u s this is the richest country in the world. Are, and we spend the most money on health care, what are we, 47th in the world in healthcare. care. We look, uh, I cite in there, there's comparison studies between the United States and the other leading 19 capitalist countries in the world. We rank last in issues of... Uh, paternity leave, maternity leave, uh, paid holidays, workers compensate you know all of these issues we we uh, of all the leading capitalist countries. They don't even have anything approaching a labor party or a significant third left party. I mean, you know, they, they, there's histories of, you know, these parties exerting real influence in some of these other countries. We we are just so far from a real class-conscious program putting forth demands for poor and working people. So I, I think where we're, we're, people are greatly hurt, you know, you, as a worker – Without even an organized and strong union movement you know you 're you're, you're always you 're vulnerable you're, or, or no union we 're down to such low percentage even unionized of a workforce and white supremacy is central to all of these things to how unions get organized who gets organized who doesn 't get organized and um, you know things have been written on this, and if you want, we can go into this more but um, so I, I think you know again, the struggle of Every issue we look at, how's it shaped by white supremacy? How are we going to deal with it in the context of class struggle, you know, in the context of challenging the the ruling powers that be?
1: Oh, yeah, most definitely. And, you know, you were just talking about – you know, the ruling class and how the, some of these things are set up. But I want people to really go back and do some research and realize and start taking a look at the labor movement and the labor unions that we've had, you know, over the years. As they beat down the labor unions and, you know, crushed them and, and, and gotten rid of them and as they continue to battle them, as that was happening, the wealth gap increased. And how all of this is interrelated, and so I think it's important for people to go back and do some research on this because it has, you know, a direct correlation to one another. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I believe we receive so much pushback with the Affordable Care Act it is because mm-hmm. of the Social and this country does not have enough social safety nets in place. And it's had some
2: disastrous effects on those in this country. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, well, we, we certainly don't. And I think part of the reason uh, that there's such um, pushback against the, the social safety net and everything has to do with white supremacy uh, because the appeal – um that is made consciously and unconsciously to so many white workers is if it's if it's public that includes back, black people you don't want that right you know i mean that that's what what is part of what what goes into this white identity that's part of what's got to be challenged and struggled against. Um, but we do need, I mean, I, even with my retirees group here in Jersey, you know, there's uh, a big push for single-payer welfare, for uh, um, a Medicare for all, whatever, you know, in terms of health care. We want to get that, that system in place, but you oftentimes can't even get the unions, many of which have been corrupted. Um, and I say that, I mean, I come out of the labor movement, I know the importance of a labor movement, but I also come out of a union, which was one of the four big organized crime dominated unions in the country so all of this stuff Gets set up in part by design. Let me, um, in terms of the po- workers and how the white supremacy shapes on a broader scale. Uh, I just want to mention briefly because it touches on New York and Chicago, the 1970 postal strike, which I'm very familiar with. Uh, in 1970, the postal uh, the workers, postal workers, because many were on, on um, supplemental benefits, the wages were so low, and there was no organized uh, no unions representing formally representing the workers and there were key struggles waged in New York Chicago and many of the cities big postal strike and um and uh, they shut down the government. They tried to bring in the the National Guard to sort the mail and deliver the mail. It wasn't working, right? And Nixon was the president at the time. Business Week did 28 pages. What's going on? Because Wall Street ran on paper and they couldn't get their paper. So this was a big uh, labor struggle coming in the wake of all those struggles of the 60s, um, heightened by the militancy, particularly of the Black and Latin workers who had come into the post office, although the post office had been a long time, historic employer of a certain number of black people the numbers increased and women increased in the 60s as a as part of the effect and 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 aspect of the these struggles so there was a militancy in the post office in 1970 and in response to that postal strike in 1970 what the ruling elite did is the following one is they um set up a Board of Postal Governors, somebody that the president could point to and blame rather than taking direct heat, as you know Nixon did when Business Week and everyone was asking, "Well, what are you doing about this? What are you doing about this?" They also recognized certain unions, um, and uh, but not even one union. So they recognized letter carriers, rural letter carriers, the American Postal Workers, and the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, but the National Postal Mail Handlers Union was a division already of Laborers' International Union of North America, which is one of the four big organized crime-dominated unions in the country, according to the Department of Labor report in 1986. So the federal government willingly allows this union to come in to the postal workforce, they do not recognize the National Alliance of Postal and Federal Employees, which was a 98% black organization formed in 1913 after Wilson uh, segregates the federal sectors, right? So they consciously bring in this or this Labor organization that, for three generations and 50 years or so, is led by father, grandfather, and grandson of uh, uh, you know one family, you know, with, with very close ties to organized crime. The other thing they do, and this is crucial, is there's a conscious turn to a wider workforce. What happens? Um, the Chicago workforce at the time of the strike in 1970, I believe, was running 70-75 percent. The Chicago postal workforce. 70, 70 75% black and Latin, 65 to 70% black and Latin in New York, a significant component of the postal workforce. What they do in the wake of the postal uh, strike of 1970 is that they pass a Postal Reorganization Act, which turns to a new hubs and spokes system for processing the mail. 21 i think it is bulk mail centers nationwide each one nominally named after an inner city but not in that inner city so for instance i worked at the new york international bulk and mail center which was in jersey city and although it's only 10 miles from harlem 10 miles from newark 10 miles from bed stuy it uh bedford Stuyvesant, in brooklyn uh, the um uh, the uh, workforce, because the public transportation is so poor, shifts. And when it's set up, it's about 80% white and 20% or less black, Latino, and Asian. A marked difference from New York. In Chicago, which was really a powder keg, you know, in terms of the labor struggles, I think they build their bulk mail center in Cicero or Cairo. I think Cicero is the town where the Klan was marching or, or something in that period. I'm not so the sun downtown in Chicago,
1: you do not get caught over there when
2: the sun sets, period. Right. So this is this was a conscious ruling class turn. And you, if you go back and you read through the congressional testimony, it's, oh, we got to go back to those type workers we used to have, you know, and stuff like that. They don't want any of this militancy of the 60s. So, you know, it's conscious ruling class you know, policy is a major factor in all of this, and we should never lose sight of it. Not that we don't have struggles to wage, you know, internally amongst working people and stuff. We certainly do. Um, and But, again, I think overall, just stepping back for a second, as we wage these struggles, you know, to challenge the powers that be, working people, poor and working people, every issue how is white supremacy shaping it? How are we going to deal with it? And I think we want to prioritize certain issues. For instance, the one, Kim, that you pointed out early, this black-to-white, two-to-one unemployment ratio. I think that, I think that drum should be beaten every day, you know, what, what, what's being done about this, you know. And, and And there's so many things that could be done, you know, again, but it moves to – Federal programs, you know, you know, I mean, roads, hospitals, schools, everything's got to be improved. There's lots of job creation that could be done if we're not spending on all these wars. And, you know, it's the, that's the general direction that we want to move, I think, though
1: exactly and i wanted to mention an article that i posted yesterday and it's talking about this week the house appropriations committee released a draft of the 2015 agriculture appropriations bill and at 27 million dollars is budgeted for a pilot program aimed at reducing child hunger in rural areas. And someone said it sounds innocuous innocuous enough, except the $27 million program was actually the committee's substitute for a White House proposal which would have allocated $30 million to child hunger across urban and rural areas. Wow. And it continues. Yes. 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 And it continues on. You know, what is the main barrier to social consciousness?
2: Yeah, yeah. What what is the main barrier? I, you're asking me, or you're you're just re- reinforcing? I mean, I, again, I think overall, overall, white supremacy. You know, white supremacism is the main barrier uh, amongst working people in this country. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's not other. I mean, within the black community, there are other issues that all, black community is discussing and you know debating and <laughs> things like that. <laughs>
1: Okay, well, we had a question in a chat room, and they wanted me to ask you, um, yeah. since you were talking about HBCUs at one point, is it true that Rockefeller funded film in College
2: and it was named after his wife, Laura? I don't know. I will research that afterwards. Um, that's possible. I mean, a lot of the historically black colleges got, you know, funding from, you know, uh, various people with lots of money, right? Uh, as I recall, um, and uh, I don't know the specifics um, of uh, Spellman's naming.
1: Oh, okay. Excellent. Excellent. I just thought I would ask because they requested that, and we'll all do some research on that, but. Dr. Perry, it has been absolutely a privilege and an honor to have you on the show today. It has been extremely informative, and when you um, release the second reader, let me know so we can have you back and we can talk about it, because yeah, you're definitely a friend of the show and you're welcome back at any time, because this information has been crucial you know um in in helping me personally because i'm always on your site and then you post on my wall a lot and i'm just like thrilled but his website is jeffreybperry.net i posted it on all of our pages as well as in a chat room i put it on tumblr and twitter guys make sure you go out there's a wealth of information a wealth of knowledge available to you and what do you have coming up soon dr perry
2: well, uh, as soon as uh, I finish this, I'm back on Harrison. I'm, I think I mentioned I'm on these deadlines. I'm trying to do 50 articles every two months for the, you know, the ultimate getting seven to eight hundred articles actually on the web. And I'm trying to finish volume two, so I'm trying to move into a writing mode more than I, over the past three or four years. I probably did three, four hundred talks. You know, I went around a lot of places, but I'm trying to concentrate on writing. Uh, not that, you know, if people ask, I won't speak or do something like w- what we did today but uh, those those, and also the, the book then for Diasporic Africa Press, when Harrison's When Africa Wakes, I want to try and get that one finished in the next couple of months, you know I'm, I'm close, you know, to a new edition with, um, uh, you know uh, introduction to each article and, and index and things like that it's going to be, a, I think, something that people will really like and I think it'll be something they want to really get it into Africa and that's another thing Harrison, within the past few weeks it, he's been getting picked up internationally a lot more both in terms of african online sites and uh, in europe uh african uh, you know african people's online sites and things like that so it's um you know that's that's it. I'm be concentrating particularly on the uh, writing uh, in this upcoming period. But Kim, I, I can't thank you enough. I, this has been wonderful. I'm just thrilled uh, to be able to discuss some of this with you. You have such a, a familiarity and command of everything. And Donald, I, I love talking to you, and uh, I hope we get a chance to do it again. And I'm I'm a total big fan of what you're doing. <laughs>
1: Okay. <laughs> well, thank you kindly, sir. And I want to let everybody know that Hubert Harrison had descendants, and Ray Richardson is his son. Ah. You know, he passed away a while ago, and um, um, he worked on one book. Can you tell us about that real quick, Doctor Perry?
2: Yeah. Well, Ray Richardson. Uh, thank you for mentioning this. Ray Richardson was the grandson. Of Hubert Harrison born the same year I was in 1946 and uh, I'm still you know in, I'm in touch with the family uh, the children Harrison's children who I, I know have passed on but the grandchildren great-grandchildren great-great grandchildren um, but Ray Richardson um, was a very talented TV producer. And a book has just come out within the past year on Black Power TV. And it focuses on a number of shows that were set up in the country in the wake of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. The one that Ray Richardson worked on was Say Brother up in Boston. Now, I've got an article, again, Black Agenda Report, Black Commentator, uh, a couple other places on uh, Ray Richardson that people might want to look at because it includes video clips, too, right? And Ray Richardson is at Boston University when um, King is assassinated, and all of a sudden, public TV and the flagship station is up there in Boston starts, you know, looking around. Gee, we have no black programming. We know, no black shows, but for the most part, no black programming. So they want to make some effort to have the black community heard. So Ray Richardson becomes a producer of this hour-long black talk show but it's not just simply talk it's entertainment you'll see uh, Muhammad Ali you you'll, you'll see Curtis maybe <laughs> you, you've got all kinds of things um, you know, in terms of the poetry, uh, it's a real vibrant community-based show that really takes Boston by storm. And he's the um, producer of it at age 23, and it's rebroadcast on the weekends, and it's having tremendous impact. And his fiancée is a woman named Vashti Lowndes, who's um, a year or two older, comes out of Howard, Howard University, and she had won, she wins uh, an award in New York, uh, uh, an Emmy for her work with Gil Noble's Like It Is show, which is a, a comparable show that started somewhat after, say, brother, Gil Noble show started in New York. These are talented, extraordinary people, and they're working with a host of other young people, uh, if people go to the, uh, Black Star News, they have a picture up there, I have a picture of the crew that was working on it, and it's all these young people, the products of the 60s, fifth rays, men and women, I, I, I mean, just, uh, a fascinating story, and I try and quote from a lot of them, but Stan Lathan, who becomes, you know, becomes a very famous, uh, producer himself, and his daughter, Saniya Lathan, people probably familiar with from her work, uh, her acting, and, um, uh, Jewel Gomez, who was one of the first um, gay marriages under the new law in San Francisco, these are all these people who are working on this station. So, what happens is New Bedford, Massachusetts, erupts in a, a racial response to some incidents. In it, they, they erupt, it erupts in the summer of 1970 and, um. Ray Richardson and the Say Brother crew go into the community for days, and they allow the community to speak directly into the TV mics, and then they air it. And they don't. But the producers of the the ultimate producers, the uh, controllers of the programming and the station, don't know what to do with it. And it's decided they shut down the um, the program and they fire Ray Richardson. There's all kinds of community protests with people who are still active today, um, but Mel King and others are, lead many community protests, and they get the show back, but Ray Richardson doesn't come back, so he goes down to Mexico with uh, Vashti Lounds to visit his father. Ray's father, Harrison's son-in-law, who's, whom Harrison never met because Harrison died before his daughter got married, um, is a Tus- was a Tuskegee airman who came back to the U.S. after World War II. He's from Texas originally. Virgil Richardson comes back, Um, to the US and after a number of real white supremacist incidents decides he's going to leave and he goes down to Mexico to live so he's living down in Mexico Ray Richardson and Vashti come down to Mexico to visit with him and uh, they're there for a period of time and as they're ready to leave they go swimming in Acapulco uh, what was supposed to be a last swim they had met some people you know a day or two uh, maybe a week earlier and they wind up dying allegedly from drowning in Mexico. Now what prompted me to write this article was the recent death of the grandson of Malcolm X Um, in Mexico under suspicious conditions and I had known some of the family background on Harrison's grandson but I worked with his other grandson with Ray Richardson's brother Charles Richardson and we put together this article on Ray Richardson because when Ray Richardson and Vashti uh, die under these suspicious conditions in Mexico this is the period of COINTELPRO when black leaders are getting we've already seen Martin Luther King Malcolm X, this period of George Jackson, Whitney Young in Africa dies under suspicious conditions. And when I'm looking in the Boston Globe at the obituary of the death of um, Ray Richardson, right underneath the obituary of Ray Richardson is the obituary of Jacobo Arbenz. If people are not familiar with Arbenz, Arbenz was the president, the elected president of Guatemala, a progressive left-leaning Uh, administration who was ousted in an open CIA coup in 1954 I mean yeah, you know claims credit for all this stuff right and they um, and he had left he lived in Cuba for a while and he was now living in Mexico so the same day virtually that Ray Richardson dies in Mexico under uh, suspicious conditions that Ray Richardson allegedly drowns in Mexico Jacobo Arbenz, according to the newspaper, also drowns in Mexico, and Jacobo Arbenz drowns in his own bathtub, according to the story. I said, oh, this is too much, right? So we we put that story out, and on that one, too, as with the Lautenberg Amendment, I put that out because I actually believe there is much more of a story here, not only in terms of the significance of the same brother crew and what they did and what these young people accomplished and the impact and effect they had. But also I think there's much more in the family. The Harrison family has always been suspicious of the death of Ray Richardson. Um, The mother and brother had their phones tapped, they were listened into. you know, there's a whole history of surveillance of them and they think there was probably U.S. government involvement um, in his death. Uh, so that's that Ray Richardson article and it's up online. Again, if you Google my name, Ray Richardson, you'll come to it. I think people will find it of great interest.
1: Excellent, excellent. Like I say, a wealth of information, a wealth of knowledge. JeffreyBPerry.net b Perry dot net is the website, guys. Like I said, I've posted it all over the place. Go over there, take a look. Dr. Perry. Thank you so much, and I definitely look forward to having you back. And I'm also going to give you a call about what we, t- we talked about earlier, so I believe that warrants more um, discussion there. But thank you for coming on the show again. You're a friend of the show. You're welcome back at any time.
2: I can't thank you enough, Kim, and I, I, really, I really mean this. I really appreciate the work you're doing, and thank you. Uh, I, I so much respect what you're doing. Thanks
1: thank you, sir. And on that note, guys, have a safe weekend. It's a three-day weekend for some people. Someone can at least send me a plate. something. Anyway, you all have a good weekend. I enjoyed you guys. And, again, this is Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye-bye.